Hey everyone, this is Caitlin, and you're listening to the Her Head in Films podcast. This is the second episode. I have a first episode, which is just an introduction of who I am and the kind of films I like, so you can find that on the page. Uh, The title of this podcast came from an email that I sent a friend once, and I said that my head wasn't in the clouds, my head is in films. So that's where the title of it came from, if you were wondering. Today is the second episode of my podcast, and I've decided to focus on Chislav Kishlovsky's uh, Decalogue. Um, so this whole episode will be dedicated to the Decalogue, and I will talk about um, about three episodes in it. There's ten total, but it's not really possible for me to go into detail about every single episode. And I'll explain who Chislav Kishlovsky is, talk a bit about his life, talk a bit about the series, give you some behind-the-scenes information. So I've got all kinds of good stuff for you. I've been working hard on this. <laughs> um, it's been about a month um, that it took me you know, I've just I've been busy, so I just do things here and there. But I've definitely been working hard to bring you a podcast with knowledge and a podcast with heart and emotion because I feel very strong, very strongly about Kishlovsky's work. So um, get comfortable or whatever you're doing, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. <laughs> so let's get started. What happens to a film after we watch it? How does it go on to affect and shape us? I've been asking these questions lately. One night in September of this year, 2016, I finished the final episode of Chislav Kishlovsky's 10-part cycle called Decalogue. It consists of 10 episodes, each loosely based on or related to the 10 commandments. As the last episode ended, I sat in the dark alone and wondered what to do next. This massive and moving experience was over. Done. Never again would the Decalogue be new to me. I can watch it again, and I will watch it again. In fact, I will watch it many times, but I'll always know what's coming, and where the plot is going, and what's going to happen to the characters. Unknowing is now replaced with knowing. I have the knowledge of these characters. They live inside me now. Their stories are part of me. And so, to answer my earlier question about what happens to a film after we watch it, I think the film or set of films in the case of Decalogue, I think they seep into our psychology. They begin a new life inside our own life. I can't look at a snow-covered landscape without thinking of the opening scene of Jonathan Glazer's birth, which please go see that film. I love that film. When I see the trees changing color in autumn, I think of Todd Haynes' Far From Heaven. I see a potato and I think of Agnes Varda's The Gleaners and I. On and on I could go. These images become my own memories. Films make up my past. They pull me into the past. I'm helpless in the face of their awesome power. In the book, Kishlovsky on Kishlovsky, the director says much the same thing. Here is what he writes. To put it another way, films are simply part of our lives. We get up in the morning, we go to work or we don't go to work. We go to sleep. We make love, we hate, we watch films, we talk to our friends, to our families, we experience our children's problems or the problems of our children's friends, and the films are there somewhere too. They also stay somewhere within us. They become part of our lives, of our own inner selves. 
They stay with us just as much as all those things which really happened. So why is it that the Decalogue is now a landmark in my life? Why is it so monumental, so life-altering, and life-affirming? That's what this podcast attempts to examine. I started the Decalogue about a month ago. Might be two months now. Because I decided that I couldn't go one more day without seeing it. I was tired of putting it off. I wanted to know this series. The Decalogue originally aired on Polish television in the late 1980s. When an interviewer referred to it as a TV series, Kishlovsky disagreed. He preferred the term cycle, because unlike a TV series that has a set group of characters, the Decalogue features, for the most part, different actors and different stories in each episode. The episodes are around one hour long. There's ten of them. I'm not sure if I mentioned that. There is a recurring character, a man who manifests in different disguises. Kishlovsky writes that this man, I don't know who he is, just a guy who comes and watches. He watches us, our lives. He's not very pleased with us. So really, that guy, some call him the angel. Um, People have different, refer to him in different ways. He is the only character that recurs throughout the series in every single episode. Now, some characters from other episodes, you'll kind of fleetingly see them in another episode, but it's quite rare. For the most part, every episode is a different set of characters and tells a new story. And originally in the script, the angel or this guy didn't really exist, um, but Kishlovsky added him later when he felt like something was kind of missing from the script. The setting is an apartment complex in communist-era Poland. It's actually Warsaw, to be exact. Kislovsky says that it was the most beautiful housing complex he could find, which is actually saying a lot. It's quite a bleak world, uh, which reminds us that the reality was probably even bleaker. Um, the housing It's really a housing estate where people live, and it's quite bleak. Um, and so when I read Kislovsky say that, that that was actually the most beautiful he could find. I was taken aback. And he wrote um, that he actually left a lot of things out. You know, as bleak as things are in the series, he left out, um, you know, long lines for things, ration cards, you know, these things that people in communist-era Poland were having to deal with on a daily basis. So he actually kind of held back um, in a way, which is which surprised me. Sometimes the characters overlap, as neighbors tend to do, but not often. Sometimes you'll see a character from one episode briefly appear in another episode, but for the most part, their lives all remain separate, though they live in the same geographical location. I've always been intrigued by the fact that we live among each other in this world, but we know so little about each other. When I was younger and I'd be driving home with my parents um, at night, we'd pass by houses that had their lights on. And I always wondered what was going on behind those windows, what people were doing, what their lives were about. It still astonishes me that we go about our lives often very isolated from other people, rarely intersecting with each other or overlapping. Kishlovsky takes us past the walls of the apartment and the psychological walls that separate us and takes us into ten stories of ordinary common people trying to survive their bleak circumstances. Often the characters are faced with moral and ethical dilemmas or confronting a world of randomness and absurdity. 
There is love, heartbreak, pain, laughter, almost every human emotion in the series. It's a rich tapestry of the human condition. But first, who was Chislov Kishlovsky? I'm assuming that if you're listening to this podcast, you know a bit about him and his work. But of course, I could be wrong, and you might know nothing about him. And I'll also say that I'm sorry um, if I'm not pronouncing his name perfectly. I have tried. <laughs> I've gone on many websites looking for the pronunciation, and so this is the one that I'm going with. So I hope it's okay. Um, I don't mean any offense or insult um, at all. Polish is the Polish names are a bit difficult, uh, I think, for Americans especially to pronounce. But I'm doing my best, so I hope that that's coming across. Anyways, Kishlovsky was a Polish director. He was born in 1941. He unexpectedly died in 1996 after creating a body of work that is surely one of the most beautiful and thought-provoking in the history of cinema. He grew up quite poor. His father was a civil engineer who had ill health and died when Kishlovsky was young. His mother was an office clerk. Kishlovsky first fell in love with the theater but when he learned he would need a great deal of education to be a theater director, he shifted his focus to film directing. He gained entry to the prestigious Ludge Film School. Um, many other Polish directors have gone there. In the beginning of his career, he made social documentaries about the conditions of people's lives under communism in Poland. However, he became a bit disillusioned with documentary filmmaking when he realized that, for instance, the police could confiscate, confiscate his film and use it against his documentary subjects. He started to feel that documentary had its limits. He wanted to focus on fiction films, and that is what he is primarily known for. His most film, famous films include Decalogue, The Double Life of Veronique, and the Three Colors trilogy, uh, Red, White, and Blue, that correspond to the colors of the French flag. Um, so that's a trilogy. His films are concerned with issues of fate, chance, morality, and the mystery of life. Of his films, Kishlovsky wrote, All my films, from the first to the most recent ones, are about individuals who can't quite find their bearings, who don't quite know how to live, who don't really know what's right or wrong, and are desperately looking, looking for answers to such basic questions as, What's all this for? Why get up in the morning? Why go to bed at night? Why get up again? How to spend the time between one awakening and another? Decalogue was born out of an idea that Kishlovsky's writing partner had about making a set of films based on the Ten Commandments. At first, while Kishlovsky was writing the scripts, he envisioned different directors for each film, but decided against it when he realized that he wanted to direct the films himself. However, he did employ different cinematographers for each film and gave them great freedom. The series took around a year to shoot, and when the Decalogue did air on Polish television, it did very well, bringing in 15 million viewers, according to Kishlovsky. Two of the films in the series were expanded and released as feature films. A short film about killing, which I'm going to go deeper into in this podcast, and a short film about love. You may have heard of those. As there are 10 episodes in the series, it's a bit impossible for me to examine all 10. What I'd like to do is focus on three of my favorite episodes and talk a bit about them and why I like them so much. The first episode in Decalogue is, in my opinion, a mini-masterpiece. It's about tragedy and loss, but I, 
loss, but I think it also has connections to our modern technological world. And perhaps Kislovsky foresaw our dependence on machines. Decalogue 1 is about a little boy named Pavel who lives with his father. They have a computer that Pavel uses. Pavel is a curious, precocious young boy who asks very deep questions, as I suppose children tend to do. There's a powerful moment when he's asking his father about death. He asks why people die. The father explains about disease, accidents, old age. But Pavel isn't satisfied. He wants to know what death is. His father gives a very scientific explanation. The heart stops pumping and so on. Pavel asks what is left after a person dies. The father explains that what the person did, the memory of them, remains in those who are left behind. As I watched this scene, I was reminded of a similar scene in Michael Haneke's The White Ribbon. In the scene, a little boy is talking to his sister, I think. It's been a few years since I've seen the film. And he asks if everyone has to die. She says that yes, everyone must die. He asks if even he has to die, and she says yes, but not for a very long time. She tries to comfort him with the knowledge of his youth, but Decalogue 1 offers no such comfort. Pavel uses his computer to do an equation that makes him think that the ice frozen on a nearby lake will hold his weight. He ends up going on the lake, which cannot hold him. He goes through the ice and he drowns. Youth is no protection for Pavel, reminding us that death can come at any time. It's a heartbreaking reality, an example of Kishlovsky's interest in fate and random events, and the pain that can result from them. Pavel's father is shattered, of course. The logic and reason he and his son had relied on failed them. The computer they depended on and that they perhaps put too much trust in let them down. Science and logic can be hollow things, as they do not answer everything, and we must live with our own unknowing. Pavel's father goes to a church at the end of the film, but he can't really find comfort in religion and faith either. So what do we turn to? I don't know. I'm an atheist myself, and I know the limits of both faith and rationality, especially when it comes to loss. I go back to another powerful scene in the film when Pavel is alive and talking to his aunt. She encourages him to help others, to try and brighten a person's day in whatever way he can. She says to him, one is alive and it's a present, a gift. We may not have all the answers and we certainly don't understand why we are here and then not here and why the people we love disappear in the end, but if we can live in the present if we can try to be good to one another and be there for the ones we love, then that's what should matter. We must live with the not knowing, the mystery all around and within us, but maybe instead of always fearing that mystery, we could also be in awe of it and grateful for it. The next episode of the Decalogue I'd like to talk about is Decalogue 5. It was expanded and later released as the feature film, a short film about killing. It's very different from Decalogue 1. Whereas Decalogue 1 asks questions about the meaning of life and the nature of death, Decalogue 5 is concerned with violence and those who take life, both individuals and the state. The film revolves around two men, an idealistic young lawyer named Peter and an aimless, nihilistic young man, Yasek. 
The film was shot with a green lens which gives it a putrid yellow color that is quite visceral when you see it. It gives the film a very sinister mood. Kishlovsky explained that if you put a green filter on the camera, the world becomes much crueler, duller, and emptier. One day, the young man Yasek, for no apparent reason, murders a cab driver. The scene of the killing is graphic and causes discomfort in the viewer as it looks very realistic. I think Kishlovsky did not want us to turn away from the reality of violence, from the capacity within all of us, or at least most of us, to perform profound acts of cruelty to one another. When Yasek is captured, uh, Peter becomes his attorney and makes a passionate plea to spare the boy's life. Even though he makes a powerful argument against the death penalty, the judge still sentences Yasek to die. Peter is disillusioned. He sees that there is little justice in the courts, that his most impassioned arguments fall on deaf ears. Before Yasek is to be executed, he and Peter sit together and talk. Yasek talks about how his sister died a few years earlier after being killed by a drunk man who had been drinking with Yasek. So he feels guilt about that. He talks about how her death changed him. He's scared. He seems like a little child. And in some ways he is. He's only 20. And though he did a horrendous thing, his death is not justice. As graphic and uncomfortable as the murder of the cab driver is, the scene of Yasek's execution by the state is blood chilling. According to Kishlovsky, the scene was done in one shoot, or in one shot. They did it in one shot, and it was very difficult uh, for the actors to do it. Decalogue 5 is an anti-death penalty film. It is deeply political, in my opinion, deeply concerned with the violence of the state. Of the death penalty and the film, Kishlovsky has this to say. I think I wanted to make this film precisely because all this takes place in my name, because I'm a member of this society. I'm a citizen of this country, Poland, and if someone in this country puts a noose around someone else's neck and kicks the stool from under his feet, he's doing it in my name. And I don't wish it. I don't want them to do it. I think this film isn't really about capital punishment, but about killing in general. It's wrong no matter why you kill no matter whom you kill, and no matter who does the killing. I think that's the second reason why I wanted to make this film. The third reason is that I wanted to describe the Polish world, a world which is quite terrible and dull, a world where people don't have any pity for each other, a world where they hate each other, a world where they not only, they not only don't help, but get in each other's way, a world where they repel each other, a world of people living alone. So he's not really just talking about the death penalty, he's talking about the society in general and how people interact with each other. The film did have a social effect. In 1989, the government suspended executions for five years. The death penalty was officially abolished in Poland in 1998. Um, I think this film is profoundly relevant for an American audience especially because we still have the death penalty in the United States and it's something that I deeply, deeply disagree with and that I don't believe in. I am like so anti-death penalty and um, it still disturbs me that this country is executing people. So I think especially for an American audience it's, it's even more relevant. 
Probably the most compelling character of Decalogue 5 is the lawyer Peter, because we see his transformation from an idealistic person who believes he can do good in the world to a disillusioned man troubled by the horrific violence he has seen. You can tell he is absolutely devastated, and I think maybe all of us have these moments, I know I have, when we finally see the world for what it is. We see the violence, the oppression, the injustice, and no matter what we do, we can't change it. I mean, I don't think you have to be a lawyer to have that moment of disillusion that Peter has. I mean, I've had it myself, like, when I was, I guess, in high school or even when I went to college. I still kind of believed, oh, we can change things, you know, um, <clears throat> we can, my generation can make things better, and if anything, I've just seen things get worse, <laughs> um, especially in the United States, but you see it all around the world right now. Um, you see the humanity, the injustice, the violence, and so... I don't know how to deal with it. I feel profoundly disillusioned. And for me, Peter is uh, is very relatable in that way of having that moment when he's just like, I, I can't do anything. You know, I really, I, you know, I, I couldn't do anything. And the helplessness and the powerlessness that you feel. Peter could not save Yossick. And you get the sense that he will live with that for the rest of his life. The final episode I'd like to talk about is Decalogue 8, which concerns the Holocaust and is about a woman who did not save another person when she was given the chance. I'm just going to take a sip of water. The film's main characters are Sophia an elderly professor who works at the University of Warsaw, and Elsbieta, also a professor a bit younger and from the United States who's visiting the university. She's obviously fluent in Polish and she has ties to Poland. Elsbieta has translated some of Zofia's work, so the two do know each other. One day, Elsbieta sits, sits in on one of Zofia's classes in which students are telling stories that pose ethical questions. One of the students even tells a story that is in an earlier episode of the Decalogue. I think it's Decalogue 2. Um, so that's sort of interesting how um, it could be Decalogue 2 or 3. Um, so that's kind of interesting when you hear that story again but in a totally different setting. It's it's like this, I don't know, it kind of made me smile. I was like, ooh. You can see how um, these lives get entangled in interesting ways. Okay, where was I? Elsbieta tells a story about a little Jewish girl during World War II whose parents are sent to a ghetto while she's taken to the home of a Catholic family that instead of hiding her, sends her away. It's not revealed in the class, but we later learn that Elsbieta was the little girl and Sophia was the one who refused to save her. Sophia explains that her husband was in the Polish resistance and heard that the Nazis were posing as Jews in order to capture resistance fighters. Of course, this explanation is a bit odd. Elsbieta was a six-year-old child when this happened. Would she really be pretending? The story itself is based on a true event that happened to the Polish writer Hannah Kral. 
Poland has a complicated relationship with the Holocaust, and I don't want to, uh, you can't overstate that. It's very complex. Um, Poles suffered greatly under Soviet occupation and then Nazi occupation during World War II. The country also has a history of anti-Semitism and violence towards Jews, a history which many in the country do have a hard time confronting, as evidenced by the controversy that ensued after the publication of Jan Gross's book Neighbors, uh, which documented a Polish town that massacred its Jewish neighbors during the Holocaust. That was a big controversy in the 90s, but it's an example of how it's very difficult for people in Poland to talk about the violence that they themselves did against Jewish people during the Holocaust. At the same time, there were Polish people who took in Jewish people and hid them. So it's a complex situation with many shades of gray. So I do think it's important that Kishlovsky chose to do an episode about the Holocaust and to do it with complexity and nuance. Zofia made a choice to not save the little girl, but at the time she had reasons, whether we completely believe them or not. It's possible that in that moment she really did fear that the little girl was a trap or a trick, and she wanted to protect not only her husband, but the other resistance fighters working with him. I think it's also important when we talk about the Holocaust, whether it's what happened in Poland or any other country that was involved in it, uh, to not sit in extreme judgment, as we have no idea what we would do in similar situation when our lives are hanging in the balance. Of course, I'm not talking about the Nazis. I'm not I, I'm not talking about that. Obviously, what they did was horrific. I'm talking about everyday people, people in Poland, even Germans, you know, ordinary people who were not running camps, were not running, you know, death camps. The death camps were in Poland. Just everyday citizens, you know, living in their homes, dealing with Nazi occupation. It's complicated, and I think it's... I I have a problem when we kind of go back and say, oh, well, I would have done this. I would have hid Jewish people. I would have done this. I would have done that. Well, you don't really know that. You you do not know, faced with these decisions, what you would have done. That I'm not letting everybody off the hook who did bad things during the Holocaust or during any genocide or any conflict or war. I'm just saying... We need to be careful when we say that we would have done certain things or to sit in really extreme judgment of other people. Uh, we like to be we like to believe we would be good and moral, but we don't know that for sure. Decalogue eight is a devastating story about two women trying to come to terms with the past. Zofia must live with the decision she made just as everyone who lived through World War II in Poland must live with the choices they made at that time. Perhaps the film was a plea to the nation to openly confront what happened during the Holocaust and to face the truth. You know, there are plenty... I, I used to be really judgmental of other countries. You know, when I would learn about genocide or war and... Like, oh, you need to face up to it, you know, and need to do this you need to do that and then as I've gotten older I see that <laughs> it's not that simple I mean look at the United States especially when we're dealing with the race issues like Black Lives Matter and we can't even confront slavery we can't even confront the terrible racism of our country we have so many right-wing people who just basically deny that it happened. well they don't deny it but they 
you know, they sh they try to sugarcoat it or they try to make it not sound so bad or, you know, it's, so I, I get it. You know, it's very complicated and, I, but I think it was pretty powerful that Koslovsky decided to dedicate one of the episodes to the Holocaust and he writes in Koslovsky on Koslovsky about the nationalism in Poland, the anti-Semitism in Poland and how strong it is how strong it was, how strong it still is, and we definitely have strands of nationalism and racism here in the United States, so, you know, it's, it's difficult, you know, you think you can face the past, and oftentimes there are people in power who will not allow that to happen, or there are, there are people that don't want that to happen. And so somebody like Kishlovsky making this episode, I think it's very powerful. And I think he was trying to say something with that episode. And that's why it is one of my favorite episodes. Because he dared to go there. You know, he dared to to go into the Holocaust and look at, well, how did this Polish woman treat her Jewish neighbor? And she didn't, she didn't save her. She didn't really make a good choice. Um, and so it goes back to all those moral, those moral and ethical questions. And of course she has to live with that. They both have to live with, with the choice that she made. Even though in her mind she had her reasons. So ultimately for Kishlovsky, the Decalogue is about, and I'm quoting him, what in essence is right and what is wrong? What is a lie and what is truth? What is honesty and what is dishonesty and what should one's attitude to it be? This focus on morality and, the, and its messiness is at the heart of the Decalogue. Whether he's looking at the death penalty or the decisions that people made during the Holocaust, the characters of Decalogue, the characters in all of Kishlovsky's films are flawed and struggling and not always sure that they're making the right choice or even what the right choice is. And that's what makes his film so compelling, so timeless, so brave, and so relevant. Kishlovsky's body of work is a gift to humanity. I truly believe that. I also believe that he is the pinnacle of cinema. He is my favorite director at this moment in my life. Of course, that could change one day. I love many directors, I do. But Kishlovsky gives me so much more than any director I have ever witnessed. He gives me heart, but he also gives me intellect, magic, mystery, beauty, difficulty, grandness. You know, in the Decalogue, I love that he focused on working class, ordinary, common people. He had a grand vision. He could have made one film. Instead, he made ten for the Decalogue. He did the same with the Three Colors trilogy. He asked big ideas, or he thought about big ideas. He sought grand themes. He was not afraid to ask enormous, unanswerable questions about life and fate and these forces that are beyond us, the forces that shape our lives and that we don't understand and that we don't have control over, you know, and the terror of that, you know, that that creates is that really on any given day, everything, so much is beyond our control. And those things shape us and change us and determine our course and determine where we go. And that is just profoundly compelling and interesting and 
just important to me. You know, I think about those things. The only other director I can think of that gives me a similar feeling when I watch his films is the late Abbas Kurostami. We lost both men too soon. I will always wonder what more Kishlovsky could have done. Um, he did write a few scripts that have been directed by others. I saw Heaven um, recently, which was one script. Um, I think it was part of another trilogy. Heaven, Hell, and I think Purgatory. Um, but it was lacking for me, that film. No one can direct Kishlovsky's material but him. I'm really convinced of that. He brings brings a touch to it. He brings something really special. Imagine if, if he had given those ten scripts to ten directors as he had originally intended with the Decalogue. The Decalogue simply would not be what it is. He knew how to bring his own ideas, dreams, and words to life. He understood humanity and the struggles of the human condition. There was an interesting quote he had. Um, he said, if you don't understand your own life, you can't understand other people's lives. That's not a direct quote, but that was the gist of what he was saying. He thought it was really interesting to understand your own life and to look at your life and that it would help you understand others. He gave us films that stand as testimony to cinema as art as an art form that can change and shape society. His films are part of me and they always will be. If anything, I hope this podcast inspires you to seek out his work or to rewatch it if you've already seen it. Um, a new site was launched called Filmstruck and um, it's a partnership between uh, Turner Classic Movies and uh, the Criterion Channel and they have almost all of Kishlovsky's films up on there. They are doing a two-week free trial so um, that's something you could maybe explore if you're interested in seeing his films. If you have Hulu uh, they're on there until November 11th. I think November 11th, that's when the Criterion Collection will leave Hulu. So, um, Filmstruck is probably the one place where you could see quality versions of Kishlovsky's films, and you may find a few on YouTube if you search. The Decalogue is not on Filmstruck right now. So the Decalogue is not available in that way. Um, but it's on Amazon and, you know, different places. So... I hope this podcast um, helped you. I hope it gave some information that maybe you didn't know and maybe made you more interested in Kishlovsky or the Decalogue. And so that was my um, my main motivation. Wanted to talk about how much I love the series and how life changing it was. And I hope I hope I did it justice. <laughs> I tried. It's, I think it's about impossible to do the Decalogue any kind of justice. Um, you just have to watch it and experience it for yourself. But um, I thank you very much for listening. I appreciate your time. And until next time, goodbye.